0: Good morning, Good morning. Merry, Christmas. Merry Christmas, all right, if it's all right with you guys, I'm going to talk first to the, the kids in the room, kids where are you at, where are you at today, all right, we've got a bunch of y'all, this is awesome, all right, we've got an important mission for y'all today, I hope um, many of you probably have the, uh, um, the coloring pages that we gave at the beginning, if you don't, could you and you want one, please, please raise your hand and we'll, we'll get you one right now, we've got several of them left. On these coloring books today, um, they're about a country called Iran, far away from here. I mean, it's a it's a pretty country with some neat people. Um, there's a lot of people in this country, though, that don't like people that follow Jesus. Uh, but there's a lot of Christians in this country, too. There's a lot of Christians in Iran, and uh, they need our prayer. I want to show you a picture now um, of a guy. His name is Pastor Saeed. Uh there's Pastor Saeed and his two kids. They look a lot like you. They're actually Americans. They, they live in America now. Um, but Pastor Saeed went to Iran a couple of years ago, and they put him in prison because he's a Christian. So your special mission today, while you go through that coloring book and you learn about Iran, I want you, every time you hear me say the word hope, to just in your mind, in your head, um, quietly pray for Pastor Saeed um, that he would get released from prison sometime soon, and he'd be able to go and be with his family. He's about to spend his third Christmas in jail, and this will be the first one without any family with him. Um, so that's your mission today. Are, are y'all with me, kids? You ready? Okay. And I'll try not to be too long as I talk to your parents. Um, I do have a clip. Um, he, he actually sent out a... Uh, um, a Christmas letter a few days ago, and that came out on the internet. And I was just blown away by the the Christmas letter from this man, Pastor Saeed, who's in prison. And I want to read that um, part of it with y'all today. Um, He says early on in the letter, these days are very cold here. My small space beside the window is without glass, making most nights unbearable to sleep. The treatment by fellow prisoners is also quite cold and at times hostile. Some of my fellow prisoners don't like me because I'm a convert, a Christian convert and a pastor. They look at me with shame as someone who has betrayed his former religion. The guards can't even stand the paper cross that I've made and hung next to me as a sign of my faith and in anticipation of celebrating my Savior's birth. They've threatened me and forced me to remove it. This is the first Christmas that I'm completely without my family. All of my family is presently outside of the country. These conditions have made this upcoming Christmas season very hard, cold, and shattering for me. It appears that I am alone with no one left beside me. That's tough stuff. But later on in in his letter, he shows that um, in the midst of all this pain, he does have hope. He, He goes on to say, Christmas means that God came so that he would enter your hearts today and transform your lives and to replace your pain with indescribable joy the same way that the heat from the earth's core melts the hard stones in itself and produces lava, the fiery love of God, Jesus Christ, through the Virgin Mary's womb, came to earth on Christmas to melt the hard heart of sin and wickedness of the world and remove them from our life. I love this analogy that he gives of of Jesus as this fiery lava that broke into the world in the first Christmas and defeated sin. In the same way, um, this fiery lava is is what can um, move aside and defeat whatever hardness, whatever pain we may be feeling in our lives. Um, And in the meantime, Pastor Saeed waits with hope. That's what Advent's about. Advent's about waiting. We've been talking about Advent these last two weeks, talked about how Advent is all about, you know, it literally means coming. And it's about how the people of God had been waiting waiting. Ever since the garden, for a redeemer, for a savior, and God had been telling, had been giving them these promises. You know, we, we first looked at promises through Abraham, where we saw that can sp- can become cans, um, and then we saw promises through the prophets, where we saw that we're um, that God gives us promises, so we wait for peace, and that Christ will be our peace, and that He is our peace. Um, Advent is all about the season of waiting, but sometimes. While this sounds exciting to me, um, sometimes I realize waiting can be painful. I mean, it can be really hard. Um, You know, we all know that the news is often depressing, but I was really struck this week, as I know many of y'all were, when you heard the news out of Pakistan. A terrorist attack, which we've almost become accustomed to, but this terrorist attack was at a school and over 140 um, people, mostly children, were killed in this, this vicious attack. Uh, I often get my commentary on the news from Twitter. My wife laughs at me. But I'm looking at Twitter that day, and this tweet came through that I thought was kind of, um, um well, 140-plus dead children. My mind and heart have trouble processing that. What a dark advent this has been. The light seems insufficient. That's tough stuff. I mean, how how do we process something like that? Um, It's not easy. This morning, I'd like to uh, introduce you to a character character who is um, very familiar with processing this type of pain and suffering, uh, and very familiar of uh, how to have hope um, and to celebrate Advent in the midst of waiting through pain. Um, This man's name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I was first introduced to this man um, in college when my mentor gave me this book. I mean, this is a classic. It's not easy to read, but it's great. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. You know, it's all about how, yes, grace is free, but grace came at a great cost when our Savior died on a cross um, for us. And if we recognize the cost at which we got this grace, it's going to impact the way we live. The cost of discipleship, um, it's great. So he wrote that book. Um, I've recently been reading his autobiography. It's by a guy named Eric Metaxas. Yes, it's huge, but there's an abridged version now. There's also another book called Seven, which is uh, that Metaxas also wrote um, about seven different men, also guys like William Wilberforce and George Washington and their faith stories, and just powerful stuff when you read their faith journeys. Um, But Bonhoeffer, um, he's just an incredible character. Let's see, he was... Um, He was a child during World War I. He's German, and um, so he saw the pain and suffering of war. His brother was killed in World War I. He also had another relative that was killed. After the war, God put a burden on his heart to become a pastor, and he became an incredible pastor and theologian, which is why he wrote some of these books that that we uh, still have and uh, look at today. Um, And then World War II came about. Um, early on in World War II, he was actually in the United States, and he could have stayed here and remained safe. And he was there was great reason to do so because he was involved in ministry, but he could not let um, his brothers and sisters in his homeland in Germany suffer while he was in the United States. So he went to Germany. He went back, and he was a, a huge leader, both spiritually and otherwise. Uh, he helped lead the true church underground while the um, uh, Hitler and the, the Nazi state church was, was kind of the uh, accepted religion of the day. Uh, he was leading the, helping to lead the true church. Uh, but he also, because he saw the atrocities that Hitler was bringing in because it was just not just, he stood up politically. Um, he helped um, Jewish, re- Jewish refugees get uh, out of the country. He also, um, he is most well known for being a part of the Valkyrie assassination plot, the failed assassination plot to try to get at, get Hitler. Um, some of y'all may remember there was a movie a few years ago, Tom Cruise was in it, um, trying to get Hitler. Well, um, Bonhoeffer was part of that. Um, yes, it failed, and because of that, he found himself towards the end of the war in prison, sitting in a dark prison, waiting. Um, I'd like to... And, It was during this time that he often spoke about Advent and the great hope that he had. This quote from Bonhoeffer, the celebration of Advent is possible only to those troubled in soul who know themselves to be poor and imperfect and who look forward to something greater to come. Life in a prison cell may well be compared to Advent. One waits, hopes, and does this, that, or the other, things that are really of no consequence, the door is shut, and can only be opened from the outside. (coughs) Waiting. When you're completely shut in. No escape. No hope from anything on the inside. Only hope is that you'll be rescued from the outside. Have you ever been in prison? Please, nobody raise your hands. (laughs) But have you ever been in prison? You know, figuratively speaking. um, Or you just feel stuck Caved in, no escape, can't get out. Um, You know, this could be through an illness or a disease. Boy, cancer has seemed um, like the latest prison of the day from friends and family that that I've seen. Um, What about financial woes? Uh, Relationships falling apart. Have you ever been in prison? Um, Have you ever felt like there was little or no hope? Bonhoeffer's story um, and Pastor Saeeds, I uh, I went to them today because they remind me of the character that we're going to be looking at today, um, who is one of the most important voices of Advent, and he also found himself in prison. And uh, I want to take a look at uh, we're going to take a look at his story today, and that's that's John the Baptist. Um, John the Baptist. In our passage of Scripture, if you want to start going there in your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 11. It should be about page 1103 in your Pew Bibles. Matthew is about three quarters of the way down. It's the first book of the New Testament, the first gospel. Um, John the Baptist is in prison. But we first hear about John the Baptist very early on in our Bibles. Uh, the prophets had been foretelling about this Messiah, about how Jesus would come, and you see that all through the prophets, but you also see mention that um, a forerunner would be coming. Someone would be coming to prepare the way for Jesus. Isaiah chapter uh, uh, 40 says, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare, prepare your way. This messenger would be John. And then we in the book of Luke, before we hear about um, Uh, the birth of Jesus, before Mary learns that she's going to have a baby, her cousin Elizabeth is visited by an angel. And she learns that she will have a very important baby. And this baby will be the forerunner of the Messiah. And that baby would be John. John set the stage for the one who would come. And he was a voice crying out in the wilderness. Um, He was out at the Jordan River, and he was calling for for uh, letting people know that judgment was coming. Um, and that they needed to repent from their sins. And he was baptizing people. And it it was while he was doing this, in the midst of his ministry, when Jesus came to him. And John got to be a witness of the glory of Jesus in a powerful, incredible way Um, during that baptism of Jesus, when the skies opened and he saw uh, just an incredible sight. He knew that the Messiah had come. He was a firsthand witness And this was the same John the Baptist who had followers of his own and he went to them afterwards and he said, I must decrease and he must increase. John was devoted. He had an incredible ministry. Yet, while Jesus was going around town doing the miraculous, people were getting healed, great things were happening. John found himself sitting in a cold, dark prison cell. And that's where we we pick up our story. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. Now when John heard heard in prison about the deeds Christ had done, he sent his disciples to ask a question. Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news proclaimed to them. Blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. While they were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in fancy clothes? Look, those who wear fancy clothes are in the homes of kings. What did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. All right. Well, let's let's start at the beginning and look at the question that John posed to Jesus. He's sitting there in prison, and he says, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? I I suppose there's a few different things that could be going on here if we look strictly at the words. I mean, was he confused? Was he having doubts? Maybe this really wasn't the Messiah. Maybe there really is someone else that we should be waiting for. But that can't be true. Just think about what what he witnessed at the baptism. He saw Jesus in full glory, He followed faithfully. I must decrease, he must increase. John the Baptist knew who Jesus was. So I look at the question that he's posing, um, and I'm thinking clearly, John's expectations have not been met. I mean, he's seen all the great things that Jesus has done for all these other people, and he has been the most faithful. He's been the one who comes before Jesus and he's sitting in a prison cell. You know, I, I keep on coming back to the words from one of my favorite movies, um, Field of Dreams, where Ray Kinsella, this farmer, goes out and does all these crazy things, plows through his fields, and then he goes off across the country picking up random people to bring him back to this baseball field that he's created because the ghost of Shoeless Joe Jackson is going to do some really cool things with these random people that he just met and he's watching all this and they're about to go out into the cornfields at the end and and ray's getting really mad and he says wait a minute i did all this 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 and this and i never once asked what's in it for me and shoeless joe says ray what are you asking and he says what's in it for me and i can't help but feel for john because he's been selfless the whole way he's been a faithful servant and he's sitting in the prison Jesus, have you forgotten me? Are you the one who's to come, or should we expect someone else? Um, I would wrestle with hope, too, in that situation. I mean, that's tough. That's really tough. You know, Bonhoeffer, I've told you, he's written some incredible things about Advent and about hope and about waiting, some powerful, powerful things about the Christian life. But look what he, he wrote in a letter to one of his friends. He said, despite everything I've written, it's horrible here. The dreadful impressions often pursue me well into the night, and I can cope with them only by reciting countless hymn verses. And then my awakening sometimes begins with a sigh instead of a praise of God. You know, I've also often shared um, about how last year before God led my wife and I to Houston Church, we were in that, a year of just the unknown, and we didn't know what God was going to do. And uh, my wife and I, you know, we would take turns. One night I would be the strong one where I'd say, God's got this. We're good. I have no idea, you know, where our next paycheck's coming from, but uh, he's faithful and he's going to lead us and, and my wife will be out there freaking out. The next night, I would be just up staring at the ceiling and she says, we're good. God's got us. Um, we, I, I would be lying to you to, uh, if I were to say that um, I was just, you know, gung-ho, this, this faith journey is fun. Uh, this, this, you know, all these question marks, I enjoy this. No, that would have been a lie. Uh, John is being brutally honest here um, as he says, Jesus, what is going on? You were the one we were waiting for, and I'm sitting here in prison. But how does Jesus respond? Jesus answered them. He says, Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news proclaimed. Proclaim to them, blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. What's Jesus doing? Well, he's listing his resume, saying, look what I have done. You, John, know very well the prophecies of Isaiah and all the rest of them. They said all these things would happen. Lame walk, lepers cleanse, blind see. John, you know that I am the Messiah. He he reorients John's pain and fixes his fixes it on who Jesus is. John, come back and just remember who I am. You know I am faithful. That's what he's doing here. You know I'm the Messiah. You know that what I'm coming to do, even though it's hard to see right now in your misery, in your pain, in your prison cell. Um, I'd like to look at another quote from Bonhoeffer. See, not only was Bonhoeffer just waiting to get out and, and get back to life and the ministry that he had, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was engaged while he sat in that that prison cell. Um, This is one of the letters that he wrote to his fiance Maria. Be brave for my sake, dearest Maria, even if this letter is your only token of my love this Christmas tide. We shall both experience a few dark hours. Why should we disguise that from each other? We shall ponder the incomprehensibility of our lot and be assailed by the question of why, over and above the darkness already enshrouding humanity. We should be subjected to the bitter anguish of a separation whose purpose we fail to understand. And then, just when everything is bearing down on us to such an extent that we can scarcely withstand it, the Christmas message comes to tell us that all our ideas are wrong and that what we take to be evil and dark is really good and light because it comes from God. Our eyes are at fault, that is all. God is in the manger. Wealth in poverty, light in darkness, succor in abandonment, no evil can befall us. Whatever men may do to us, they cannot but serve the God who is secretly revealed as love and rules the world and our lives. God is in the manger. What a powerful perspective to have in the midst of pain, in the midst of being in prison and suffering. Um, He recognizes that it's significant what the Son of God did when He took on flesh and He came into the world in the most unusual of circumstances. I mean, think about this. On a road trip in the middle of the desert, cold, and there's no hospital, there's no no hotel room to go to, so we're going to do it in a filthy, stinky, cold manger. That's how Jesus began His incarnation into the world. He took that pain and suffering head-on, and then he lived a perfect, sinless life as human, experienced the pains and, 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 and sufferings that we endure in life. He grieved. We know he cried when his friend Lazarus died. Uh, he endured all, the, all that we endure and then some because in the end, he took the sin of the world on his shoulders and died in the most excruciating, excruciating manner in the cross. Jesus came into the world and among other things, he came so he could experience, enter into our pain and know what we're dealing with. And so, yes, sin and pain and suffering, they're not completely out of this world yet. He's still, his, still, his work is still not completely finished. But he's able, if we have a relationship with him, to put his arm around us and say, I know, I understand, and I love you. Just stay fixed on me through it all. God is in the manger. So let's look at how what Jesus does next, because this point is really interesting. He defends John because he's with with some some men around him that are hearing John, uh, who is questioning Jesus. And he wants to eliminate any possibility that they could be saying, well, you know, John, he really wasn't that strong in the faith. He's really pretty weak to not have hope right now. I mean, come on, you see all these great things that Jesus is doing. Jesus won't let that happen. He says, while they were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowd. What did you go... And he starts with these three rhetorical questions. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the winter? Well, you see, John... He was out baptizing in the Jordan River, and there were, there were these reeds throughout the river. And the wind would come, and they would just shake and to and fro. And so um, what Jesus is referring to is saying, hey, look, this is not somebody who's just going to be casually tossed around. I mean, this guy, he stands strong. He, he knows what he stands for, and he will not be shaken. And then Jesus says, what did you go out to see, a man dressed in fancy, fancy clothes? Look. Those who wear fancy clothes are in the home of kings. Okay, first of all, John the Baptist clearly was not this guy because um, John had a reputation for looking like this wild, crazy man with this crazy hair and raggedy clothes and eating weird things. And uh, uh, So, yep, that's definitely not John. But this is saying, hey, look, a person with fancy clothes who's all all about appearance, Uh uh-uh, that's not John. This man is first class. This man is everything... Um, I mean, he's legit. Then look at this next question: What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. He says, "Yes, this is this is what my forerunner. This is the one that you came to see. This man is not weak in the faith." And then I love this part. He says, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. John was greatest because of all the prophets. He was the the forerunner. He was the one closest in proximity to Jesus in his ministry. Um, What's Jesus doing here? He's saying, look, if John, the forerunner, the one, the most faithful, John the Baptist, if he is going to have a crisis of faith, if he is going to struggle with hope, It's okay. What this tells me is that whatever we're dealing with, whatever I'm dealing with, God's okay with it. If we come to him and say, you know what, God, this really stinks. This is not at all what I I thought my life would look like. And I've been a loyal servant. I've been a disciple. I've been following you. And you're going to put me in this situation, with this pain, with this illness, in this kind of financial decay. God, I don't, he's okay with, the, with us wrestling with him, so long as we stay fixed on him and focused on him through it all. That's what a relationship is. And Jesus affirms that in a powerful way here with John the Baptist. So if you are sitting in a prison of sorts today, and if you feel that there's, that, that hope is hard to see, here's what I would say to you. We stand between the first and second advent, so cling to hope. We stand between the first and second advent where Christ has entered our pain and prepares to restore all things. What does that mean? We have hope because of what he did in the first advent and the second advent. He conquered sin in that first advent. Yes, there's pain and suffering, but he cares about us and loves us and he doesn't give us more than we can bear. And you'll be amazed at the way he can give you joy in the midst of your trials, whatever it may be. And if he doesn't completely relieve that suffering of whatever you're going through, he will one day. Because we have the hope in the second Advent. That's what Advent is about. It's celebrating what he did in the first Advent so we can get fired up and know he's coming back. We have a great hope. I love Bonhoeffer's perspective. It's still not Christmas, but it's also still not the great last Advent, the last coming of Christ. Through all the Advents of our life that we celebrate runs the longing for the last Advent, when the word will be, see, I am making all things new. The Advent season is a season of waiting, but our whole life is an Advent season. That is a season of waiting for the last Advent, for the time when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. I'm thankful for the voices of uh, John the Baptist and, and Pastor Saeed and, and uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I mean, John the Baptist was executed shortly thereafter. His, his, um, his, uh, uh they chopped off his head. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hung. He did not see the end of the war. And just a few days later, the war ended. And so he was never reunited with his fiance. But they had this great hope that rings true you consider the book of Revelation. Consider uh, what we're told about the second, heaven, or the second advent. The first advent, Jesus came silent, came quietly into the world, and hardly anybody noticed. But in the second advent, nobody will miss it. It talks about a triumphant entry uh, where the king will return in, in a glorious manner. It says this in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and earth had ceased to exist, and the sea existed no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, the residence of God is among human beings. He will live among them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will not exist anymore or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the former things have ceased to exist. And the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. Then he said to them, Write it down, because these words are reliable and true. We have a great hope. He's going to make all things new, and we can count on that. There will be no more tears, no more crying, no more mourning, whatever you're going through. He will wipe it away. So let's celebrate this first Advent um, and point people to the hope that we have in the second Advent, this this Christmas season. I want to conclude uh, with a conclusion to Pastor Saeed's letter. He said, so this Christmas, let the lava-like love of Christ enter into the depth of your heart and make you fiery, ready to pay any cost, in order to bring the same lava love to the cold world around you, transforming them with the true message of Christmas. Soaking in the lava love of Christ, Pastor Saeed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us and the hope that we have. We know that you do care for the pain that we endure, for the suffering in this world, for the hardships, Lord. We know you entered into that pain uh, when you came and lived on the earth, Lord. God, just build our hope, build our faith um, so we can rejoice as we look forward um, to what you will do in the second Advent. May it all be for your glory. Please stand with me. Go into the world as ambassadors of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Go as ambassadors of his joy, ambassadors of his peace, and ambassadors of his hope. And know that whatever you're, you're going through, or whatever those you share the love of Christ are going through, know that Jesus cares and he wants to put his arm around you and share the great hope that we have because he's coming back. Have a great week.